exploring the business behind the hype around Caitlin Clark. Plus, the Illinois governor is not so sure about dishing out a billion dollars to the White Sox. And later, we'll hear from NFL journalism legend Peter King. It's Wednesday, February 28th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Clark has made a name for herself as the face of women's college basketball, and for good reason. That was the crowd at last week's game between Indiana and Iowa. Clark is a record-breaking scorer and has become the focal point both of opposing team defenses and for fans' love and on the flip side, their ire. And you know what? That's exactly how it should be. That's exactly what women's basketball should be. Um, You know, it should be heated. It should be that way. that just is because people care so much and people are so passionate about winning, um, and that's what makes it so fun. Joining us now to talk more in depth about the Caitlin Clark effect is front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich and senior writer Mike McCarthy. Welcome, Mike. Welcome, Amanda. Great to be here. Great to have you both. So, Amanda, you are at the recent game in Indiana. We know that Iowa sells out games everywhere they go. What was it like to see it live? It was loud. <laughs> That uh, is the first word that comes to mind. Um, I had the privilege um, of being in, you know, a historic college basketball arena to begin with in Assembly Hall. And um, it was just electric, um, you know, in the arena. Uh, it was a sellout crowd, but not one. Of, it, it was a true sellout, like where, you know, the seats were filled. It wasn't like there was a, 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 a sellout that the secondary market, you know, didn't like had a bunch of tickets left, if that makes sense. Um, there were multiple lines around um, kind of wrapping around the arena for the general admission seats for the people who bought tickets, but um, didn't have assigned seats. Um, I spoke with fans of all ages, genders, um, who some who got there at 930 in the morning when the doors didn't open till six and the game didn't tip off until eight. Um, You know, people who flew, people who drove, uh, people who stayed with family, people who stayed in hotels um, and on and on and on. And um, and then the other thing I'll say was I, you know, part of the hype around the Caitlin Clark phenomenon, which I'll be writing about, was the hate for her. Um, I've never seen so much hate uh, for her. Some, you know, people, Indiana fans found her to be extremely controversial, too flashy, too showy, annoying, uh, you know, complained too much to the refs. They People brought signs to make fun of her, just as many people, you know, as, as who brought signs to say, hey, I traveled to see you and I love you. Um, and, and I think that was all part of the fun. Um, so it was it was really amazing to see a community that has like historically been involved in the college basketball world just get even more revved up uh, for Caitlin Clark. And and then, of course, for her to be upset and uh, for Indiana to 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 knock them out. So what are the media networks doing with this massive phenomenon? How are they leveraging this, trying to you know take advantage of this moment? 
Well, besides popping champagne bottles and ordering, you know what I mean, uh, a nice vacation for themselves, they're using Caitlin Clark in a variety of ways. Uh, Peacock sees her as the best thing since an NFL playoff game. Uh, as Amanda so boldly said, they had a chance to put the game on NBC Sports and they choose to keep her recent games on Peacock and her next game will remain on Peacock. So, you know, NBC Universal is saying, look, we're building our streaming platform and we're going to use Caitlin Clark to do it. Fox, on the other hand, is going to go all out. Uh, from what I'm hearing, her final game against Ohio State is going to be on the Big Fox broadcast network and they're going to throw everything but the kitchen sink at it. Oh, and there's going to be ISO cams. There might be another TikTok thing. I mean, it's going to be all Caitlin all the time. Yeah, it's interesting, these two approaches. I mean, Peacock seems to be saying, like, we're investing in this. We're not going to, you know, get as much as we possibly can out of this. I mean, by Peacock, I mean Comcast, by saying, we're not going to put this on the broadcast network. We're going to say, you want to see Caitlin Clark? You got to, you know, pay up for Peacock. Whereas Fox, I mean, it seems like the smarter approach to me. I'm not as enmeshed in this as, as you are. But I'm just wondering if you have a take on... Is there a right approach here or is it just different approaches? Well, all I can think of it is an old Rick James song, Cold-Blooded. Peacock is making a cold-blooded, black-and-white financial decision here on what's best for Peacock. Uh, Fox, which isn't really uh, much into streaming, uh, has more of an opportunity to broadcast her to over 100 million U.S. homes. And personally, uh, I always... uh, air on the side of viewers. So I prefer the Fox uh, method than the Peacock method all the way. Amanda, we'll, we'll have more time to talk through this one. But I mean, Clark right now is is the phenomenon, but it, she didn't just like take the sport on her back and come out of nowhere. I mean, women's basketball and at the collegiate level is getting more and more popular. The NBA is getting more and more popular. How much is it that like it's her and how much is it like she is the star of this growing ecosystem? Yeah, I definitely think it's a combination of both. Um, obviously, we're seeing a, a huge increase in ticket sales and ratings like, you know, Mike just spoke about. There is, you know, a, a financial debate about, you know, how to maximize profit margins and shareholder value using Caitlin Clark. Um And that's not to despair, you know, I don't want to downplay or disparage the, the value that that has had for the game, but, you know, I, I've been covering the growth of women's basketball and the business side of it for a few years now. And a lot of this might be a bit more heightened, but it's not new. Um, you know, everything has been growing. Every measurable metric of women's college basketball has been growing, um, you know, since I started on this beat in 2020 every year. And Caitlin Clark is just the most recent reason that that is the case, right? The way that I've been describing it is like iron sharpens iron. Um, And that, you know, the women's basketball community has already been really galvanized. The folks in Indiana, for example, were like very adamant to me that they, um, have been women's basketball fans for a while now, especially since their women's team has surpassed the men's team in terms of quality. Um, and that, you know, they were here before Caitlin Clark, they'll be here after Caitlin Clark. I think she just provides another storyline, another layer, another reason to root for or against another reason to engage. And in our last few seconds here, Amanda, did you get a sense of how Clark herself is reacting to all of this? 
Um, I didn't in the post game interview because she lost. So she was kind of focused on that. Um, but she's never struck me as someone who is like a ham, if that makes sense. Like she's not, you know, she, she's in the spotlight. That's not necessarily her prerogative in my opinion. Um, I don't think that she would, you know, there are some people who are in the spotlight for their personality, you know, and kind of their antics. And she, I I don't think that's the case with her. I definitely think her, the antics that she does have rub people the wrong way, but you know, everyone's antics rubs everyone the wrong way in sports. And that's part of the fun of it. So um, it's, it's hard to say, but she clearly, she, you know, when, when it really gets down to it from what I've seen from her, she's a very sort of um, grateful athlete, you know, um, and, and is really enjoying being part of the growth of the sport. All right. Amanda Christovich, Mike McCarthy. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks Owen. The Chicago White Sox ask for $1 billion in public money for a new downtown stadium may be dead on arrival. Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker voiced skepticism on the notion that this would be a good use of money, saying, Taxpayer dollars are precious, and the idea of taking taxpayer dollars and subsidizing the building of a stadium, as opposed to, for example, subsidizing the building of a birthing center, does not seem like the stadium ought to have higher priority. He went on to say that he would prefer the stadium be privately funded. Sox owner Jerry Reinsdorf is predictably making threats around what might happen if they don't get the money. He told Crane's Chicago Business that he will advise his heirs to sell the White Sox when he passes away, and that without a new stadium, the team would be worth more to a group in another city. Why is that predictable? Because Reinsdorf threatened to move the team to Florida in the late 80s before securing $137 million in public money to stick around. In 1995, he told Cigar Aficionado, a savvy negotiator creates leverage. People had to think we were going to leave Chicago. Hat tip to Jim Margulis of Sox Machine for finding that quote. Now Reinsdorf is running the same playbook in the hopes it gets him eight times more money. The NWSL has released new kits for every single team. Having every team rebrand at once is the kind of thing a young league can do and gets a lot harder once you have an older league with established identities. What the NWSL is going for is a combination of unified aesthetics and differentiated designs that reference the area they play. For instance, the North Carolina Courage have triangles on their jersey to reference the research triangle of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. The Orlando Pride's base color is orange because Florida is a major citrus growing area. Per ESPN, some of the team logos are designed with one eye toward being fashion items that transcend the team and break into mainstream culture. While this design process began over a year ago, the timing is good for Nike, allowing the swoosh to show it can design uniforms that don't become an object of national ridicule, as people are still trying to figure out who is to blame for the MLB uniform fiasco that you heard all about on yesterday's show. Up next, Peter King is a legend of sports journalism, someone who absolutely changed the game and paved multiple paths, particularly with his NFL coverage that countless others have followed. King announced this week that he is retiring from journalism. My colleague Eric Fisher spoke with him on his storied career. Now the industry has changed in the four decades that King has been on the beat. That conversation is next. We are pleased to have on Front Office Sports today the legendary football writer Peter King, who has announced his retirement after a stellar career of more than 40 years. Peter, thank you for joining us. Sure, Eric. Happy to be here. So 
Let's start with you for a second. We'll get into the league here. And you've been a trailblazer for online insider content, both in form and function over the years. And I know you've never made it about yourself, but I'm going to put you on the spot. And now that you're making this big career step and looking back at your time in the business, what do you see as the lasting legacy of MMQB and now Football Morning in America? Well, I hope it's that young people, when presented with an option of what to do with their lives, choose uh, a diverse menu of things to do, a diverse menu of ways to tell stories. In 1997, when Steve Robinson, my pro football editor at Sports Illustrated, said, hey, we're starting this new thing. It's called CNNSI. It's going to be a website. I barely knew what a website was. In fact, uh, I didn't even have an email address when we had that first conversation. And so I was just starting to get sort of web savvy. I wouldn't web savvy. I, just, I mean, I was starting to learn the alphabet of the web in essence. But one of the reasons I did it is that, first of all, Steve was a very good friend of mine, but also, you know, he wanted me to write a column for this new venture. Uh, and nobody else at Sports Illustrated, everybody had a contract with their exact duties delineated. And I just said, okay, I'll do this. And I didn't get any extra money for doing it. I just did it. And I've always thought that that kind of makes the difference. You know, you, you don't know, especially in the environment we're in now, Eric, we have no idea five, 10 years from now, how stories will be told, how information will be gotten. And there is still a really important part of that that is in sort of gumshoe reporting. And it's to be able to set up, you know, as I did this year, I was going to spend 10 minutes after the game, after the Super Bowl, with the winning coach. I arranged it with Kyle Shanahan. I arranged it with Andy Reid. So I'm sitting there with Andy Reid. And, you know, he basically tells me this play, Tom and Jerry, that won the Super Bowl. And we're going on and on about it. And I'm not even thinking about it. And within 48 hours on all platforms, on TikTok, uh, NBC, everything, it has gleaned 4.2 million views, uh, which is the most of anything on NBC Sports or NBC News all of this year so far. I mean, the year's only two months old. But anyway, my point is don't limit yourself. Basically, put yourself out there in, in today's parlance. Learn the podcast. Learn how to uh, diversify yourself. Uh, learn how to do TV, do radio, do everything. And so I would hope that that plus the fact that, look, what I'm best known for, I'm sure, is this column that became this behemoth, this 11,000 word uh, a week behemoth. And look, that's just me. I'm, I've, I've always been a writing nerd. And I thought that I really wanted to be the next Peter Gammons when I was reading him when I was in high school in Connecticut. And so it's always good to have sort of heroes and people to aim for. And maybe there's a kid out there somewhere who's aiming for me. And that would be an honor if it were true. Just expanding on that point a little bit, uh, you came up in newspapers, Peter Gammons came up in newspapers, I came up in newspapers. That's just one part of this big media disruption that we're now seeing. Um, you, you sort of talk about not being able to necessarily see exactly how stories are going to be told, but they will be told. Um, 
that all said, what do you potentially see as the crystal ball here as we go through this massive disruption? And look, I think it's all going to start with streaming. And I believe that when everyone in the free world is grousing about streaming, and look, you'll say, well, Peter, of course, you work for NBC. Of course, you're going to be on the side of Peacock getting Chiefs Dolphins in the wild card round. And, and, and honestly, that has absolutely nothing to do with it. I'm just trying to be a pragmatist. And if everyone is cutting the cord, if there are half the number of people who have cable uh, as their main form of television uh, inter- access right now, if you're doing that by cable and that has been cut in half in the last seven years or eight years, what, what do you keep doing? Keep plowing into over the air and cable TV? Of course not. You make deals with streamers, you know, with Amazon Prime Video. You make deals with Peacock and you try to make as much money as you can, obviously. But you try to get people to understand, OK, this year it was whatever, 15 or 16 games on Amazon and one playoff game. And, and, and it'll be basically the same thing probably next year. But that is the way of the future. And you're going to see other leagues do the exact same thing that, that's happening now in football. So, look, I think that's how it starts. But I think there's always room for innovation. I think that, you know, Rich Eisen came up with this. It's a great idea. Bill Belichick and Nick Saban ought to do a coach cast just like the Mannings. The Manning cast is brilliant. It's brilliant. And you know how I watch the Manning cast, Eric? I turn on the Manning cast on Monday night, and I remember, uh, was it Drake? No, it was Clay Thompson. There was one game this year that Clay Thompson was on, and I didn't really care about what Clay Thompson had to say. So I turned over to Joe Buck and Troy Aikman. And I watched Joe Buck and Troy Aikman for, let's say, the second quarter, whatever quarter, uh, you know, Clay Thompson was on. And then I put it back for whoever it was. And that's the greatness of it. We get to make that choice. You can either watch the standard thing or you can watch Peyton and Eli. And look, honestly, I mean, I'd rather just have Peyton and Eli, to be honest with you. You know, unless they've got some really brilliant, funny Will Ferrell, whatever. But I just enjoy listening. And that comes from covering those guys, particularly Peyton a lot. But I think the innovations in streaming and in how games are done on television basically is going to lead the way. Well, that's a great segue into talking a little bit more specifically about the league, because, of course, you've had a front row seat over all these decades and the massive increase in the economic scale and power in the NFL. Where do you see that going and what can the league still be doing better? Well, um, Eric, I think there are two boogeymen in the, um, in the immediate future for the NFL. One is the continued, uh, trouble, uh, over head trauma And a lot of things that the NFL is doing now, the NFL wasn't doing 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And so we're still going to see, um, and I'm not saying maybe to the level of Junior Seau and Dave Duerson, who 
you know, people who killed themselves uh, because they just didn't understand what was going on in their brains. But I think I hear people talk about this all the time and I just shake my head. Um, you know, oh my God, you're, you're making the game too soft. You're doing this. People understand the risks. If they don't want to play football, they shouldn't get involved. And look, I think the NFL needs to be on the cutting edge of every health and safety. I think one of the great things the NFL has done in recent years is advocate and work toward position specific helmets. And these position-specific helmets, which you're starting to see roll out now, but will be more and more. And you say, well, what does that mean? Why why do you need that? And here's why. If how How does a quarterback get concussed? A quarterback gets concussed because oftentimes he'll hit his head hard on the back or on on the surface of the field, whether it be grass or artificial turf, and he'll get concussed that way. And so... The quarterback's position-specific helmet vastly improves the padding and the support on the back of the head, on the back of the helmet. And they look at where all of the uh, all of the positions on the field, where the concussions come from. Do they come from getting hit in the side of the head? Does it come from getting hit on top of the head? Whatever. And that's how... They have. They are making manufacturing these new helmets now. I think that is a. I'm not saying it's a game changer. It's a game improver. That's number one. But the other thing I believe right now, Eric, um, is that the NFL uh, is going to regret some of its decisions on gambling and on sports betting. Uh, I believe that ten years from now. We're going to have a huge number of people in this country who are hopelessly addicted to sports gambling. And part of the reason is that they're being told every five minutes on every NFL telecast, bet, 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 and then bet some more. I just don't think it's healthy. And I just simply don't think that just because gambling is allowed and gambling is illegal, you ought to embrace it to the point uh, that the NFL is. I think they've gone way overboard on it. The internationalization of the league, this has been a big thing we've seen, particularly in the last two years. Pro or con for you? Oh, absolutely unequivocally pro. I got into this discussion with Chris Russo on his, uh, you know, the mad dog on his show one day. He hates it. And I said to him, I remember saying to him, I said, so, you know, Jacksonville against whoever, pick a team, Jacksonville and the Chargers. You know, instead of the Chargers at Jacksonville uh, at at one o'clock on a Sunday afternoon being one of five CBS early doubleheader games that day, not a doubleheader game, but early regional game, excuse me. Instead of doing that, you put it on national TV, on NFL Network at 930 in the morning in London. What's wrong with that? Really? Truly, what is wrong with that? There's 272 regular season games moving. I think eventually eight will be moved, but moving four or five games a year. How does that harm the product? Really? How does it? It helps. I have been to two games in Germany and I will just say this. Germany loves the NFL almost as much as Green Bay loves the NFL. 
And I know you'll laugh at that, but I'm just telling you, having been over there and look, it isn't, I, I, that's a joke in many ways, because obviously everybody in Green Bay is into it. And probably only 20% of Germany is really into it. It might even be 15%. But all I know is that both of the games I went to the last two years, uh, Tampa Bay and Seattle in 2022 in Munich, and then obviously in Frankfurt this past year, Miami and Kansas City, those were gigantic events. And that that is good for football. And look, I am past the day, Eric, where I think there's going to be a franchise overseas at least anytime soon because there's just too many things that stand in the way uh, of doing it. And you almost would have to put two teams over there, but be that as it may, what's wrong with taking eight games a year, playing one in Brazil, one in Spain, one in, I think eventually there will be one in Ireland. The Steelers will play there Uh, playing two in England or three I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that regularly every time that Jacksonville has nine home games, that they would play two games in in London. So there's a lot of different ways this can go, but, and put a game in Paris every other year. The, the bottom line is very, very simple. There's a lot of love for the NFL all over the world and the NFL should take advantage of it. Well, we're going to need to leave it right there, but we want to, again, congratulate Peter King for a remarkable career, and whatever the future holds for you, we'll certainly be paying attention. Eric, thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today. Tell a couple of friends about the show. We have all kinds of fun stuff coming your way every weekday. Thanks for listening. We will see you tomorrow.